Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and your name is Stacy Smith. Stacy, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. What's very funny is that last year you and I were supposed to record on Enemy of the World, and more by accident than by design, it just so happened that Enemy of the World was due out the Sunday of Galley, where you and I were both going to be. So we recorded there, very popular episode. Warren Fry showed up for a wordless cameo. And then I saw that you were on my schedule for Galaxy 4, which coincidentally is this week's episode. And you were also going to be at Galley, so I said, Stacy, you get in Thursday night, let's meet Thursday night and record this. And you said... Sure, and that the air- sounds great. <laughs> and the airline said... No, we're putting the aircraft in for maintenance. <laughs> oh. So it's Friday, and I'm here at last. <laughs> A day late, but not a dollar short. That's right. And you forgot to bring your copy of Galaxy 4. No, I deliberately left it behind because I was traveling light. I was doing carry-on only to get through the airport. Nice. <laughs> Luckily, I brought my copy. So let's talk about you first because you do more things in a year than I have ever done in a lifetime. And I'm at 50. I'm halfway past the finish line. So you can answer this in any order you like. How many countries have you visited since we last spoke, and how many books have you either written or edited or been published in since we last spoke? I'm expecting very long answers to both. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I've been in quite a few countries because I, I was in Europe. Um, uh, actually, I went to Regenerations Con um, at, at a conference in Bulgaria, and then I flew to the UK, um, and I went to convention there, met up with like galley people, and then um, traveled like through Europe with um, some Doctor Who fans. Um, so I took like the train to Paris, and then went to Belgium, went to Luxembourg because I had Australian friends there, and then I took the train through the Alps to like Italy. Wow! Uh, hung out in Venice, uh, then I flew to India, and <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been a trip. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, weirdly, last year I did a lot of small trips to the U.S. and I hadn't really been to the U.S. much um, uh, since COVID, and then suddenly I was there all the time. So uh, where in the U.S. were you? Definitely not New York, because I would have seen you. No, and no, I was in like Atlanta and Ohio and Virginia and like you know just like places like that, just kind of random places for conferences. I was in Atlanta for a conference in October of 22, mm. but I would have recognized, you have very distinctive hair. I do have a distinctive hair, yes. I would have recognized <laughs> Very colorful. <you. laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then as for books, uh, I had a whole bunch of ships came in at once, and so I had uh, the top ten diseases of all time. That's Which I have a copy for you to autograph, but I left it in my room, and it is not with us during this recording in the basement of the convention hotel. Right. But I'll, I'll find you before the weekend is over. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, yeah, so that, that's a popular science book, uh, basically about diseases and their, their like passage through history and how societies reshape themselves around it, which I'd actually proposed before COVID came along, and then <laughs> it got rewritten quite a lot. Mm. Uh, I also had a book on... On, uh, how to write for scientists. Uh, oh wow! And it's called How to Write slash Edit Your Academic Article. And the word "write" is crossed out. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> uh, and, and this is basically I was sick of all the academic articles uh, being so badly written. Um, so I said, okay, let me show you how to do it. And I took all my skills as an editor, and I was like, let me really show you what writing is because all writing is editing. Um, and this breaks down the process piece by piece based on a talk that I actually give at uh, convention. 
That's why I have two talks. I have one for the academic crowd and I have one for the Doctor Who crowd, where I basically break down the writing process from uh, one of the books with Graham that I did. Um, and, and laying it all out actually has said it's helped people a lot to, to kind of follow along how to construct things and how to rewire things. But here's the thing. People who have listened to this podcast and have heard my audio essays know that I write but don't edit. I can probably benefit from your expertise. <laughs> yes, well, actually, it's funny because I don't edit you very much. You, you write very well. Um, your, your stuff is pretty polished. Whereas I find, like, one of the things about Outside In, uh, the book series that I do, is, like, I will often get very first drafty stuff from people. And I, there's a lot of pieces where I have to, like, do some heavy lifting. Uh, but I'm very good at it. And so I'm really, I'm good at, like, I feel like, making the piece into the best version of itself that it can be. So I'm not imposing my vision on it. I'm trying to find out what its vision is in the first place. You have always been very good at figuring out what my piece mm. is about long before I do. Yeah. So my no. first few <laughs> essays for the first four or five outside ends required a lot of rethinking. But lately, you just send my stuff back with a thumbs up. In fact, so for the next one that's coming out, it is the Deep Space Nine volume. That's right, yes. And I've only seen a handful of Deep Space Nine, and I said I've got to do the baseball episode because who knows baseball better than me I am not just a Doctor Who podcaster but I am also a dues paying member of the Society for American Baseball Research <laughs> which is even nerdier in its way than Doctor Who fandom is so I decided to write a biography of Dusty Baker who is the character that Cisco loosely bases his manager role in the episode on at the time Dusty Baker was the manager of the San Francisco Giants and of course as Cisco calls him the San Fran Cisco yeah. Giants. <laughs> I see what you did there. So I did yes. an essay on, I did a, a biography of Dusty Baker and his many interesting roles throughout 60 years in professional baseball. And I was sending this baseball-heavy essay to you, whose knowledge of baseball is about it's, as much of mine as of it's, infectious it's e diseases. It's even less than my knowledge of cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I thought this piece would come back with red ink and the frowny faces. Came back with no edits. I was impressed. It was, without doubt, the best essay about baseball that I will ever read. <laughs> <laughs> and you, of course, missed a couple of panels today. So I was nominated to be you, and I was nominated to sit in and moderate on the Stay on Target panel, talking about the Target books, which is my area of expertise. But moderating a panel when you don't learn you're the moderator until two minutes into the panel is an experience. <laughs> that, that, that is a me thing to do. I endeavor <laughs> to maintain your tradition. But there was another panel this morning for a book that I've never heard of that you were supposed to be in. And so what's that about? Uh, that's like a, an academic um, kind of like investigation of Doctor Who. Um, and they asked me to write about the Doctor Who books, in fact. And so I wrote a, an entire sort of like history of Doctor Who original novels, actually. And, and which is, I think, you know, it used to be what everyone was into in the 90s, and now oh, yeah. I feel like there's a few of us who are still hanging on. Me, uh, <laughs> me buying all the NAs that were, yes, that were lost exactly, on my behalf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's basically just the journey through kind of like what the what the novels looked like and what it was like being there um, when, when that was the only Doctor Who. And they were like, the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla of Doctor Who in the, in the 90s, and everybody read the same books. It's like being in the best book club for like 15 years. And the books heavily influenced the new series in multiple ways. And you have another book discussing how the books influenced the new series. Yes, yes. Actually, we're almost on Bookworm 2 which is talking about how the EDAs influence the new series or at least the sort of like parallels in the zeitgeist um, and so that one has been a, quite a heavy going because there's 74 of the books <laughs> so, and that was not quite the same hit to miss ratio as the NAs the NAs had a very correct. good hit to miss yes. ratio the EDAs were a lot more experimental yeah so what's the title of your essay for this academic book that was here this morning 
Gosh, I can't even remember. <laughs> uh, it will be listen. I, I, I just remember saying it was all Paul Cornell's fault. That was my <laughs> thing. Yeah. It, was, it was Paul Cornell who'd like he wrote Time and Revelation, and it just changed everything. Uh, I can't even remember what I what I called the thing. Because the title of the essay, as I recall seeing it, is very similar to the name of this podcast. Oh, is it? <laughs> something about the legacy of Doctor Who yeah, literature. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I, it, it's it's not one of my most brilliant titles, I think. It was it was more workmanlike, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me because I'm an academic in my day job, and so like, I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist, but I you know I also do a lot of stuff. Where I mean, just investigating deeply like how things are constructed, and I kind of find that doing the academic Doctor Who stuff is not really my jam. I, I'm kind of like I don't want to be doing work while I'm doing my hobby. Like I want to write for fun. I want to write for an audience who wants to like you know violently disagree with me and like throw <laughs> things and, and so on. And that to me is really like the fun. Part. And and I find like the academic stuff is like yeah okay but it's just a bit too close to where I like spend my weekdays so so I, I do it sometimes and I dabble here and there but it's not my major focus. Well, were there six authors to the piece and a statistician, or was it just you? Yeah. <laughs> and was there a peer review process? It, it was just me, but there was a peer review process. Yes. Yeah. So so it's, it's genuine academic stuff. Um and and I like I can do it and I will do it sometimes, but I try and not do it quite as much. And actually, I just had a recently like quite a good time writing for like Utopia, um, which did a fanzine. And you know, I I got I got. Luckily, I got Wild Blue Yonder to do, which I had to choose before the episodes came out, and I, I was, I, I, I was going to choose the Star Beast because I knew there was a trans character in there, and I thought, no, I'm going to push myself, and I'm going to choose the other one, the one that has like no information in the ads and so on. I was like, oh my god, what is in this episode? And so I had no idea what I was going to expect, and then I was like, oh, this is great, and I kind of had to get a handle on it, but like it was really cool. And I feel like writing fanzine articles for an audience of like I don't know what handful of tiny readership they have, it was really fun. I just love doing that stuff. I have a piece on the latest Vorp Vorp. I did a joint interview with Nigel Robinson and Michael Stevens, so the mm. author of the Unearthly Child novelization that never got released, mm. and Michael Stevens who commissioned and edited it as the uh, editor of the Target audio yeah. line. Yeah, cool. So mm -hmm. that, again, had a much less rigorous peer review process. It's, yeah. it's, for, it's for a fanzine, <laughs> but it's a very high-quality fanzine, mm. so check that out in the dealer's room. And I got to interview today on the Targets panel the authors of all three of the novelizations of the 60th anniversary special. So Gary Russell, who did the Star Beast, he's been on the show before. Mark Morris, who did the novelization of Wild Blue Yonder. Yep. And James Goss, who did the novelization of The Giggle. All prolific Doctor Who novelists mm -hmm. who have many books on sale in the, in, the, in the dealer's room next door to us. Nice. So that would have been mm -hmm. you had you yes. uh, not had a delayed <laughs> flight. So mm -hmm. thank you for the uh, inheritance. <laughs> thank you for your sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I think we've reached the. I think we've exhaustedly covered all your books that have come out since you were yeah. last. Well, on oh, the show. Outside In Regenerates came out. That's right. That's the one that came out in November. And I did yes. autograph a couple of copies of that yesterday. Nice, nice. And mm -hmm. my piece on that was written almost three years ago now, because that was during the my pandemic pilgrimage rewatch. I would have watched Abominable mm -hmm. Snowman in early 2021, and I really. This is before the animation came out, and I really hated it because it's. Everything good that I remembered about it was actually nasty and racist and off-putting. Yeah, it, it was so funny to me that you, you had such passion about the Abominable Snowman. I'm like, who hates the Abominable Snowman? Like, who even thinks strongly about it? It's like toast. Like, it's just so boring. Like, what? And that really grabbed me. I was like, oh my god, you have really strong things to say about it. Okay, it's yours. And actually, I never told you this, but I almost, almost swapped you out for Frontios. Because your Frontios review for the Reading's Guide was so brilliant. And I got stuck with no one to write for Frontios. And I was like, this is one of the best reviews I've ever read, was that Frontios thing. Except I just didn't have 
any hope that I could actually replace you on Abominable Snowman. <laughs> <laughs> so I left it as is, and I, I'd already published the Frontios one on the ratings guide, but man, that is a great essay. I would have taken the Frontios one under a pseudonym. Yeah, <laughs> I have never done a pseudonym for Outside In. You I, never I, needed I'm, to. I am proud of this. I, I really do get 160 plus people every time, uh, and it kills me a bit, but I did finally get someone for Frontios. I've, writ I've written two reviews of Frontios for the ratings guide, because I did the novelization mm -hmm. and I did the TV series, but I can't remember if I wrote the TV series one during my pandemic pilgrimage or before because I during the pilgrimage I realized that I love the story mm -hmm. I adore the story yeah but when I I think when I reviewed it for you I was calling it the Godfather part 3 of Christopher yeah. H. Bidmead's script yeah. so I don't even I, hold that view anymore because now I've come to realize the brilliance of Frontios <laughs> yes because <laughs> when you're watching the Peter Davison era in order as I did for the pilgrimage mm -hmm. season 19 he's trying hard and there's mm -hmm. some really good stories in there same with season 20, but he doesn't figure out who his doctor is until season 21. And once he figures out his doctor, everything just takes off. Yeah. And mm -hmm. as much as I love the Davison era, season 21 is the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. So I may have said negative things about Frontios when I was watching it jukebox style in between unrelated stories. But when you're watching the full Davison, Frontios is an absolute gem. Mm -hmm. So I'm almost glad you didn't publish the other one because I suspect yeah. that's a faintly critical <laughs> yeah. review, which I no longer hold. Right. <laughs> Yeah, we, we put it in the 50 Doctor Who stories to watch before you die, which people were quite surprised by. And I was like, have you watched it? Like, <laughs> yeah. Did you and Bill Evenson put it in your comedy book <laughs> chapter on the 50 Doctor Who stories to die before you watch? We, we, did, we did not, but I think we put the Gravis' nose in there for uh, something. <laughs> <laughs> mm. As a kid, I didn't like Frontios because of the direction. I think it's Ron Jones who doesn't realize that cameras come with two things, wheels and a zoom feature. <laughs> Watching a Ron Jones episode is to go, oh my god, dude, move the camera. You're a director. You're not you're not called a stationary. So, so I, I actually, I watched Frontios down at my, my cottage in the, in the 80s where we only had a black and white TV. And wow, does it work well in black and white. And, and you know, I watched a fair bit of Doctor Who there, but Frontios was one that just really made it. And, and I was like, oh my god, this story's incredible. And, and having seen it in color since, I'm like, yeah, okay, but this is such a great black and white story. I've heard that said about Time Lash. Time Lash works very well as an audio because you can't see the visuals. And mm. the Borat's voice is specifically crafted for audio because Robert Ashby, unlike myself, mm. has a very deep voice. Yeah. So, speaking of Toast... Speaking of <laughs> inoffensive stories, how on earth did you come to choose Galaxy 4? And thank you for being my sacrificial yeah. <laughs> lamb, by the way. Yes, well, I was listening to your Twin Dilemma podcast, and Graham, like, when you mentioned this, Graham was like, that's a really odd choice for Stacy. And I was <laughs> driving to Montreal at the time going, yeah, yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> and it is an odd choice. Actually, the, the reason I picked it, though, I, I, I think you, you gave me the list of books, and I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I was like, oh, Galaxy 4, give me that one. Like, I was very passionate about it. And it's not for the story itself. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I've seen the surviving episode enough and a third. Um, and I don't, I don't think I've listened to the audio or anything. Um, uh, it was for the novelization. It was particularly had, had very strong, powerful memories for me. Um, when I... Um, I think I bought it when it first came out in early 89 um, and then in uh, end of March 89 uh, I, I read basically the first episode because it's it's you know the book has like all four episodes are the four chapters and you know when you're a kid that's the best thing ever and it's like, the genius yeah. of the book because as it's a kid the best thing about it yes I'll talk about yeah. this more on the audio yeah. essay all I yeah. wanted to know is where are the cliffhangers so I can yeah. stop reading for the night mm -hmm. and I think Graham made this point last week yeah either William Ems was very lazy yeah or <laughs> he didn't have a clue but 
The only other novelization to do this is, I, I think, in this point in the series, is The Web Planet, which is six chapters for right. six yep. episodes. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, the name of each chapter is the name on the camera script for the episode yeah. in question because the Hartnells had individual episode titles. So for that That's alone... Right. It, yeah, yeah, it, it was great for that. Um, and, and actually, I, I used to go through all the my novelizations, and with a pencil, I would put a little, like, slash where I thought the episode, like, cliffhanger was. Stacy, you are a woman after my own heart. <laughs> I did the exact same thing. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, all I my mean, novelizations Sometimes they were marks. obvious, and sometimes they were really not. And I think there's one that's in the middle of a sentence somewhere. <laughs> a few, yeah, like, right, yeah, there's a few like Here's that. my best guess. Ian Marta does that a couple yeah, of times. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, so Galaxy 4 was great for that. And, and so, so I was reading it, and I read basically the first episode, first chapter, um, and then I, I had to go away for the weekend, and that weekend changed my life. And then I came back and I had to read the rest of it. And I was just so stunned that I'm still reading the same book on, on this, this incredible weekend that is like, like my life was never the same since. And that was, you know, 35 years ago now. <laughs> and, and, and it just had such incredible power for me, this novel, because it was the book I was reading when my life changed. And can you share with us what the change was? Yes, yes. So, so I, I went on. A, it was a Christian youth group um, thing they were doing, but but it was kind of a weirdly like chill one. Like like you know they were like, oh, come to this like you know getaway youth camp or whatever. And I thought it'd be all like Bible study or something like that, but it wasn't. It was it was actually like it was more about how to be socially skilled and and also there were girls there. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. Like oh. I was at a boys' school, so you know didn't know how to talk to girls. And suddenly it was like, oh, there's girls. We can talk to them. Actually, we could be friends with them. And it was sort of like. And I knew there was some of my friends are gone. Um, there was all these people there, and it was just incredibly welcoming and incredibly like connective. And at the end, they did this sort of ceremony of like all the newbies or whatever, and like okay, you know, like stand up and like get some, you know, like certificate or something. Um, and as they stood up, they would clap, and you know, they clap. and I was like. I was a nerd in like a boys' school, and always, always last picked for the sports team. And you know, like if you know, if I had to get something, I got a, like a maths award, and everybody booed me and tried to, you know, like, <laughs> like pierce me with things. Um, and in in this, at the end of this weekend, when I stood up to get my thing, you know, people were clapping more or less. And I was like, I know how this goes. Like, I'm gonna get up, and they're gonna be like, at best, there's gonna be a mild clapping or something. And when I got up to get my certificate, people clapped louder and harder than for anyone else. Wow. And I was just like, wait, what? Like. Can I, this nerd, be actually popular in this this crowd, and also mixed gender crowd? Like, what is going on? Like, you know, and and I basically came out of that going like, I think I have some potential here, and 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 I did, and I was able to leverage that into. into I've the, only the, known you on mm -hmm. the other side of that, but I could never yes. imagine you not mm -hmm. being on this side. Yeah, you're yeah, one it, of the most it, charismatic people it, I know. Well, so so there, there was a, a guy in this this youth group, um, and I I saw him like chatting up this girl, um, and and you know we, there was very clear rules back. Yeah, like you know, you, like one of the reasons I was not doing so well with the ladies was because I wasn't tall enough. Right, that was the message I got. Like you know, you have to be taller. Like that's the only thing that really counts. I'm like, oh no, I, I can't do anything about it. Anyway, this guy was really short, and so he was like chatting up this girl, and she was loving it. And I'm like, what's going on? Like all, all the rules are broken here. Like, and this guy just had this like incredible charm, and I'm like taking notes and going like, okay, I may not have the the height, I may not have the looks. And I don't have the charm, but I can develop it. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I'll, let me let me get to work on it. And he basically was like, yep, yep, I can figure that out. And, and it, sure enough, it worked. And many years later, after I transitioned, uh, the same guy messages me on Facebook. And he's like, Stacy, like, I just wanted to ask you, where do you get your beautiful confidence from? And I'm like, buddy, I got it from you. Like, <laughs> I even sent him a copy of my diaries for the time. And he was like, well, I'm very embarrassed and also kind of wow. really proud of that. <laughs> uh. So, this is 
and I'll talk about this more in the audio essay. I have clips from William Ems talking about his theory of female studies, and I have picked out some lines from the novelization that are not acceptable in 2024. It was questionable whether they were ever acceptable, even in 1985 or 1965, but there is... And I like the outline of the story. I love the TV direction. I love the format of the book. I loved this book as a kid, and I want to like it more than I do now because when the TV store was rediscovered, Derek Martinez's direction is incredible. But the cringe factor in some of these lines... As a work of anti-feminism, what do we say about this book? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's such a dinosaur. <laughs> like, mm. This book is from like some like bizarre lost age. Because um, I, I I was looking it up and I, I read it in '89 over that weekend, and then I read it again in '91 because I was doing a Hartnell novel pilgrimage. And I did I did all the Hartnell novels and I did all the Troughton novels, and then I stopped. Um, and so I was like, I must have read it a second time. And I looked it up. I was like, Yeah, I did. Um, but those were two you know very close to each other, and I didn't really notice. I think. Um, this stuff. I might have a bit. Actually, in '91, I was in first year university, and Kate Orman was the librarian at my university. Oh, Macquarie. Just Macquarie University. Yes, exactly. And and so I knew who she was from Doctor Who fandom, um, but she didn't know who I was. I wasn't in it, but I just I'd, I'd seen her on TV a few times here and there, um, and and at you know Doctor Who conventions and stuff. So I so I went up to her and just sort of like introduced myself, and and you know we sort of got we were awkwardly talking, but we became friends. But it, she was writing about like like you know the two doctors and vegetarianism and i was like in like the fanzine and I, I basically became a vegetarian as a result of that and at the same time she was writing about feminism in the university newspaper and i like an 18 year old boy at the time was like reading this and going oh my god i'm having my mind blown and this is about the same time that i'm reading the william hems novelization of galaxy 4 <laughs> and so these things just do not connect so i actually became a like a you know died of the wolf feminist as like a teenage boy before i'd even had like a, a first date or anything um and yeah, and so you compare that with like what's happening in this book, and it just feels like like you know my grandfather wrote this or something. It's 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 like so distant. Just for frame of reference, this episode airs I think September 1965. Exactly one year to the day later, Star Trek premieres in the U.S. <laughs> And this is back when female writers did not use their own name. So I don't think it was widely known to John Q. Public that D.C. Fontana, the writer of some of the best Star Trek episodes, was female, Dorothy C. Fontana. What if Doctor Who, which was cutting edge in so many ways, having a female heroine like Barbara Wright, having Verity Lambert as the showrunner, still nominally the showrunner, Galaxy 4 is the last story that she oversees, though John Wiles does most of the work, what if Doctor Who just had female writers in season two? What if this slot, which is a story exploring how terrible are women, what if a female writer had been given either this idea or just given a whole blank slate to write their own four-week story instead of William M's? What if Dorothy Fontana is in the UK writing for Doctor Who instead of writing for Star Trek here in California? Yeah, I, I, actually, I think there's a version of this story that could have been amazing because I don't think you need like these four women to be anything other than villains necessarily, but they just have to have character, and three of them explicitly do not. They're <laughs> like, no, no, they're just these like you know attractive robots essentially, um, and you've, so you've only really got Marga, and it's it's like. I don't think it would take much tweaking to give her like actual depth and agency and motivation and so forth. It, it, all the ingredients are there. Like she's the 
the main guest star of the show, um, it wouldn't be very hard to do. I think you just needed to strip away some of the sort of sexist elements and things, um, and particularly not putting stuff in the in the mouths of like the regulars. <laughs> um, and, and I don't know. I, I mean, the bit where the, the doctor gets mad at Vicky because she's she's getting too uppity and <laughs> like the burgeoning feminism that's happening. And that's uh, not even on television. I think Donald mm-hmm. Tosh cut that out and replaced it with better dialogue. Yeah. But because this is presumably based on his submitted scripts mm-hmm. and not the final copy. That stuff remains in there. Yes, yeah. The no- novel is even worse than the TV show. Um, um, but I, I mean, on this, a bit in the book actually, where the Rills are talking, uh, the, the, the Rill has this like big thought process about sort of what it's like, and it starts thinking about like you know the, what the females are like in the real homeworld, and they get fertilized by like any passing male Rill, whether they want to or not. And you're like, this is horrific. <laughs> like this is really awful. But we just kind of like, oh yes, that's just the alien nature of the. Like, no, stop, please stop, William. <laughs> please don't do that. And I specifically mentioned that in my audio essay, which you have not heard yet, yeah. <laughs> and the audience will hear it in about half an hour, 45 minutes. Yes, I do long episodes. But I specifically mentioned this is the incel point of view. It doesn't matter who fertilizes the egg, but women make it seem as if it matters. Yeah. Which basically is it's, a man saying, why can't I do it? Why can't you let me put it in there? Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're, it's, it's a woman's fault for being choosy, not my fault for being yeah. a horrible person. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is the book written. For, this is Doctor Who for incels. Yes. Oh, hooray! <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I I feel like I, I like I, I like the morality tale of it. Like I like that you know that there's it, it's meant to be you know the the attractive people turn out to be villainous and the ugly people turn out to be heroic. So like yeah, that's great. Like I feel like as a kid when I read the summary of this story, I loved that. I was like, oh my god, I want to see this story really badly. Especially I wanted to see what the rules look like and what they look like at the time. Um, that that would have been really cool. I think then the problem is you go, okay, yeah, we need to make attractive people terrible. What are we gonna do? And it's the laziest thing you can do. You're like, oh, let's make the hot babes into like you know just like they're awful. And you're like. I think I think we needed another polish here. <laughs> and that was a science fiction trope. I grew up watching a lot of 1950s sci-fi movies over my father's shoulder because he grew mm. up watching them and he was a connoisseur of them. And there are films like The Queen of Outer Space where, ha-ha, the women dominate this planet. Oh, no. no. <laughs> um, that is a genre in and of itself and it exists and it was of its time, we can say that. But this is not even a story where the women are beautiful and it turns out as a, surpri- as a surprise twist at the part two cliffhanger, oh wait, they've been evil all along and we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. There's never any doubt from the second that we meet Maga in part one that she is the villain of the piece. So the twist is not that the Rills are the good guys. The twist really should be that the Dravins are the good guys all along, even yeah. though they seem evil. <laughs> There's no nuance on display. What you see is what you get. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a twist without a twist, right? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. But the back cover blur promises a different book entirely. Um, the Dravins are a race of beautiful females. They desperately ask for the Doctor's help against the belligerent Rills, but things are not always as they seem. And this is right in between the moment that Dennis Spooner is leaving and Donald Tosh is coming in. Donald Tosh, you can see his hand in the televised work because the bad passages that are in the book are not on TV. Mm-hmm. And the best dialogue on TV is not on the book. That's yeah. Donald Tosh. <laughs> but this really needed a top-to-bottom rethink. You need to restage the way the rules are presented in Part 1. So either the Part 2 cliffhanger is the fact that they are villains rather than the part two cliffhanger and Vicky screaming off camera mm. that's 
Not quite as bad as the episode two of the Daleks cliffhanger, where the cliffhanger moment is Susan being scared by a clap of thunder and jumping. Yeah. <laughs> um, that should have been the cliffhanger. So you could have had a relationship between Maga and Steven. Mm-hmm. There needs to be more building up the Dravins as good guys, and then you find out they're not, rather than making them cartoonishly evil from the second we meet Maga. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- there's just not enough there there, right? It's just it's just missing... It's 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 missing depth, uh, and and so it's it's like I wanted to like the story really much a whole lot when I when I understood the synopsis. I was like, this this sounds like a, a great idea, and then it just becomes this very simplistic, very shallow morality tale, um, and and then and then when you pile in the sexism, I mean, you know, I, I think actually Doctor Who dodged a bullet many times because it kept trying to do the planet of the women, and and you know the scripts kept falling through. The prison in prison space. In space, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Which was never yeah. novelized and is yeah. not going to be on this podcast, yeah. although it was a big finish. Yes. Well, it wasn't. But <laughs> <laughs> oh god! No. I, so I was doing today the deathmatch panel. I was moderating deathmatch Doctor Who sixty for sixty instead mm-hmm. of deathmatch, which is one winner as it's mm-hmm. traditionally done. I did it as just. Ten fans giving six stories each, 60 best stories of the 60 years. We ended up with 32 from the new series, 28 from the classic series. I am sitting next to John Dorney. One of my top 60, one of the six that I mentioned, was the God Complex. And I said, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to write a sequel to The Horns of Nymon. (laughs) But this story does, and it works beautifully, and it's one of my favorites. John Dorney, without missing a beat, says, you've clearly never listened to any Big Finish. Yeah. <laughs> because that's all about waking up in the morning and Fair saying, point. yes. I <laughs> need to write do a sequel s- to something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they do it very, yeah. very well, and they're able mm-hmm. to get the, the cast back. So mm-hmm. um, so this is, a po- this is basically a positive show. I try not to do a hate watch. I try mm-hmm. not to do snark. I genuinely love these books, and even the books that have passages that I don't like... There's still a lot to like about this book, and I'll break it down in the audio essay. There's a really good 10-page passage where the Doctor and Stephen are caught in a tiger trap and have to use their ingenuity to Mm -hmm. escape. That's very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Some of the internal monologue of the reels is actually very good. Actually, I love the real monologue towards the end, like, and it goes on for several pages, and there's no dialogue, and you're kind of like, oh, wow, this is really cool, and it's it's something, it's it's kind of like, he's like, I gotta, I gotta flesh out the real somehow <laughs> i'll just give them some internal ponderings and the, the real is just like wondering about his history and like you know life back on real and so forth and, and it's really good it's i'm reading it going this doesn't feel like the same book i was reading like an hour earlier and, and yeah. it almost obviously i don't think there was any nexus between the two but david fisher in the novelization of creature from the pit which we covered on the mm. show many months ago with fraser gregory David Fisher does something similar with Arado. Hmm. And you learn about the life cycle the life cycle and the reproductive cycle and the sexual preferences of Arado's people. So well, I think I think we saw the sexual preferences on screen. <laughs> <laughs> or are you just happy to see me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so that being said, when the tour when the TV story was rediscovered that's 2011. Before 2011, had you ever seen Galaxy 4 as a recon or the surviving bits of episode 1? No, no, I never had. Because uh, I know that I, when I visited yeah. you in, in, mm-hmm. in Hamilton in the yes. late 1990s mm-hmm. with our respective girlfriends, we sat there on the couch, all four of us, watching mm-hmm. the, at the time, the Telesnap reconstruction of the Savages. That's right. Which had the dialogue on screen. Yeah. 
both of our girlfriends were unconscious <laughs> long before part two even started. Within minutes, I think, yes. We were sitting <laughs> they, they, there. They slept the best sleep of their lives, I think. <laughs> we were leaving before. We were energized. We were, we were so high-fiving. into it. Yeah, I, yeah. That was one of my oh. best Tell Us Not Recon it, experiences. Because yes, number exactly. one, you can actually see the dialogue so you yeah. know what's going on. Plus, mm-hmm. I was watching it with you. Mm-hmm. And then we had two sleeping yeah. ladies who yeah, were like, yeah. this is boring. <laughs> and what's funny is the savages from the moment that I went to you in Canada was 30 years old. Yeah. If you show somebody something 30 years old now, it's in living color and it's vibrant. Mm-hmm. Because the evolution of TV has been profound. So something that was screened in 1994, full color, special effects are still good. Yeah. Whereas 1966 in 1996, mm-hmm. not a chance. Yeah. <laughs> so had you seen mm-hmm. Galaxy 4 as a similar recon the way that we watched the Savages Recon in the, in the middle late 90s. No, and actually, <laughs> you're going to laugh because I actually pretty much almost never watched Recons. Like, I watched that one with you, but but I, I there's a handful that I've seen. I just wasn't a Recon person. Um, actually, I, I would tend to fall asleep. <laughs> so I think having you there kept me going. And, and that was one of, it's one of my best Recon memories because I was actually really energized for the whole thing. Um, and and so yeah no I, I didn't I didn't watch any of it I only watched the the episode when it came out um, and then I watched the the six minutes that existed um, right. for the other one um, but I actually have never seen the rest of it in any any form I, my only real contact with it was this novelization so the news comes out I want to say October or December 2011 that they've rediscovered Galaxy Four Part Three and Underwater Menace Part Two. What was your initial reaction when you heard that news? And if it's fair to ask, which of those two were you more looking forward to? Oh, I was I was super excited. I, I was like, oh my god, they found more episodes. And the thing is, it's like, I don't care what episodes they find, you know? <laughs> and a lot of people were like down on it even before they had a chance to see any of them. And they're like, oh, these are pretty boring ones. I was like what like this is this is like you're in a chair in the sky like like it's like this is incredible like there's brand new missing doctor who that's been found um i was much more excited to watch uh, galaxy 4 actually uh and and so i, I thought oh this is going to be so cool um and, and it's sort of like i had no real sense of the episode other than very generic things by that point um and i, I really enjoyed it like it was like it was it was a fun episode to watch. I watched it quite a few times actually. I think when it first came out, and I don't want to miss. I watched it a few times as well. But I think I, I watched Galaxy Four more, uh, and and I had no complaints particularly. Like like um you know it's not like I'm like oh yeah this is a great story, but it's more like this is stuff we never got to see. I'm so excited to see it. This and I, I feel like this is stuff from deep in the the bowels of like stuff that I don't really have any access to because I'm not a super audio person and I haven't watched that many recons and stuff. I was like oh my god they found this like you know. They've unearthed this church from like some archaeological dig. I'm so excited I get to hang out in it. And if you were to ask anybody in 2011 to draw up your list of top 10 most wanted missing mm. episodes, Billy Joel has this line, and I quoted mm. it. I quoted it during the 60 for 60 panel. Somebody was asking him what his favorite songs are, and he didn't give the obvious answers. Mm. And somebody said, well, "What about this famous song? What about that famous song?" And Billy Joel, Jewish New Yorker, goes, "Well, those are my children who grew up to become doctors and lawyers." Yeah. But what about the ones of lesser talent who went far? Those are the ones that I'm the most proud of. Uh-huh. So if you're drawing up a list of the top ten most wanted missing stories, obviously anything from Marco Polo, mm-hmm. although the racism in that story probably would not age very well. <laughs> Tenth Planet Part 4 is top of everyone's list. Episodes 4 and 12 of Dalek's Master Plan, The Two Companions Die, got to be on top of the list. Um, episode 7 of Evil of the Daleks would have to be on top of anybody's list. 
anything from Fury from the Deep, which we now know is a phenomenal, phenomenal, scary story. I don't think anything from Galaxy 4 or Underwater Menace would turn up on anybody's top 10 wish list out of the 97 or whatever it is that's still missing. I was in the car reading the article on my phone as we were driving back from some road trip, and my immediate thought was, well, Galaxy 4 is pretty dull, uh, the novelization is not the most interesting book ever written, but I've seen Underwater Menace Part 3, and I know that Underwater Menace Part 3 is a guilty pleasure of mine, and I think it's misunderstood, and I think that Episode 2 of Underwater Menace is going to be the pick of these two. When the mm. two come out, that's the one that's yeah. going to get the most positive <laughs> fandom appraisal. Well, they didn't release Underwater Menace Part 2 for a while. When I finally saw it, it is not nearly as bonkers as Part 3, so it's not the best part of that mm -hmm. story. Galaxy 4 Episode 3, it really clues you in as to the genius of Derek Martinez, because this is a gorgeously made 25 mm -hmm. minutes of television. So you have the Chumblies are very effective props. We assume from the loose cannon reconstruction that they were static props. We didn't know that the headpiece moved. We didn't know they had internal lights flashing. We didn't know they were actually going to see a reel moving in the episode. You keep forgetting what a genius William Hartnell is, so all the little bits of comedy business that he does when the camera is right up close. And Derek Martinez, and being in Lime Grove, he helps. The camera is right up in your yeah. face. An actor is mm -hmm. never more than six inches from the camera. So there's always room for inventive, creative shots. Mm -hmm. And the two biggest revelations for me is, number one, Stephanie Bidmead gets a full minute-long monologue direct to the camera. Again, six inches from her face. And she sells the Drobbins much better than this book does. Stephanie yeah. Bidmead, mm -hmm. and I know she died, passed away young. It's a terrific performance. Mm -hmm. And then the in-studio flashback from the Rills' point of view of what happens when they meet the Drobbins on the planet's surface live tape in-studio flashbacks. Waris Hussein was doing them in the very first episode yeah. of Monthly Child. They haven't been done again, and now Derek Martinez is doing it. I think this surviving episode is a gem, and it's visually one of Doctor Who's finest moments in the 60s, even if the overall effect of the story is yeah. never going to be on anybody's uh, top list. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think there needs to be room for like not just the top episodes to be found i mean of course it'd be lovely to find them you know only the best of the best uh but i you know i think something like like i mean i remember saying many years ago it's like i wish we found like something random like enemy of the world i, I just think it'd be kind of it's probably better than we think it is and wow was i prescient and <laughs> like, you walk the walk you're not just well, saying that because we well, know the answer when well, you did your review of enemy mm -hmm. of the world on the ratings guide you pretty much at the nail on the I, head I, I, yeah I, I nailed it. all my colors to the mask there and yeah exactly so actually my 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 pick for top one is the smugglers i think the smugglers would be amazing stuff um it, it's you know got like beautiful location filming it's kind of like you know historical kind of like bbc strengths that are happening like you know like it's something that is just generally overlooked I, and it doesn't have like this huge build-up like tomb of the cybermen did to let everyone down when it happens so you know something like that would be really neat i think mm. and what about we have part four of celestial toy maker what if episode one of that came back and mm -hmm. you don't have 10 minutes of hopscotch and you have 
more of William Hartnell on camera, that might get a positive reappraisal. Yeah, I, I mean, the 60s stories tended to start very strong, right? And, you know, like we had Web of Fear episode one, so everyone thought, oh, this is an amazing story. And then you realize that's because they put all the money into the first episode. Right. <laughs> and, you know, whereas we had Enemy of the World 3, which is the budget saving corridor episode. <laughs> um, and so, you know, All and the money was in episode yes, one, as it yes, turns out. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and things like, you know, Web of Fear episode six is really terrible. Like, you know, they kind of, they, they lose steam as they go. And I think Celestial Toymaker is kind of similar. So we're seeing the bad end of that one. Um, of course, if we found the one that has the, <laughs> the word in it that we don't <laughs> we don't want to do i don't know what the, the response would be but mm. yes <laughs> well there are ways to edit around that mm -hmm. um so hopefully when we get the animated recon of enemy of the of uh, i'll say that again yeah. so toy maker in a few months hopefully that will be a uh, removed from, from removed from uh the canon yeah. but yeah um this is, you're not expecting Galaxy 4 to be great because it's Galaxy 4, but when you see the surviving footage and what the actors mm. are doing, what the director is doing, it shines as a 25-minute bit of archival film, at least for those yeah. of us who like watching archival <laughs> television. So yeah, I have, I have hope that more stories are recovered, and I hope that I have more pleasant surprises. Well, I think it just goes to show there's always something great to be found in every Doctor Who story. Like, you know, no, 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 matter, no matter where you're going to dig, you're going to find interesting things. And that's what I love about Doctor Who. There's just so much cool stuff, and, it, and it's so different. And, and, you know, the things that I love about, you know, like the weird 60s missing episodes and so forth, they're only sort of half known, is so completely different to what I might love about, like, you know, like the Tom Baker era or the new series or whatever. And I love it all, just in totally different ways. And I like the analogy about all the children who've gone in different ways. Like, I think that's a really cool one. Yes, yeah, so yeah. obviously, and, it, mm -hmm. you know, um, we want to see Tenth Planet, that grew up to become a doctor and a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We want to see Dalek's master plan. That you have to become a doctor and a lawyer. Galaxy Four may have dropped out on the ninth grade, but it's done very, very well for itself, yeah. <laughs> just on the basis of Derek Martinez and Stephanie mm -hmm. Bigby and William Hartnell. I was listening to Reality Bomb. Graham did his 20 Essentials episodes for the 60th anniversary, and our mutual friend Bill Evenson, his essential, the essential element of Doctor Who was Tom Baker. And at that exact moment, I knew that I had recorded the wrong essay for Graham, and I wanted to do over because. Bill Evenson is right. Tom Baker is the essential element of Doctor Who. But I was going to have it as William Hartnell. There is this mm. popular theory among fandom that William Hartnell may have played a doctor, but Patrick Troughton is the person who created the doctor that we know today. I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think William Hartnell was a phenomenal doctor right off the bat. And he was sidelined by production teams towards the end, and he may or may not have been able to remember his lines. I think the fact that William Hartnell can go from seriousness to comedy, and yeah. he does great mm -hmm. up-close, lime-grove-y camera acting, and mm -hmm. your eyes are always on him, and he's a visually striking figure, and he's terrific in the comedy historicals, I think yeah. William Hartnell is an essential <laughs> element of Doctor Who, because if William Hartnell doesn't work as well as he did, there's no need to there, recast there him. There is no Doctor Who, yeah. <laughs> right. You're not mm -hmm. going to get to the point where, all right, if we're going to fire him, the show's over. The show is popular because William Hartnell made it that's popular, right, yeah. and that's what enables the recast. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the great stuff that Patrick Troughton was doing, Hartnell was doing incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. So I strongly recommend that anybody watch Doctor Who in order, because two things yeah. become obvious. Number one, just about every classic series story is my favorite for some point, mm -hmm. and then... Inva uh, Android Invasion Episode 1 is really good. Yeah, yeah, it is. Of, it's great. I love that and one then it falls off. Yeah. Right. And there are some... Mm -hmm. um, Invisible Enemy? 
for about 10 minutes, the beginning of Invisible mm-hmm. Enemy is great. Yep. And yep. then mm-hmm. it isn't, and Graham Williams mm-hmm. didn't know how to produce yeah. a show at that point. <laughs> Luckily, he learned on the job, and his later yeah. stuff is great. But yeah. almost any classic series story is mm-hmm. my favorite for some time. Mm-hmm. So that's one takeaway from the pilgrimage. And another takeaway is William Hartnell is a genius and he is mm-hmm. underrated and unfairly maligned and criticized for all the wrong reasons, mostly mm-hmm. because of the stories that Donald Tosh was telling out of school, Yeah, many of which mm-hmm. might not even have been true. But I think Hartnell mm-hmm. is an essential element mm-hmm. of the show for me. Yeah, nice. So, so actually, funnily enough, I actually wrote for the original Essentials uh, Mythmakers that, that was, was the inspiration for this. Richard, Sal- um, Richard Salter. Yes, Richard Salter, exactly. And my Essential was the color blue. I was like, without the color blue, you don't have the TARDIS, you don't have CSO, you don't have blue eyes, you don't have like all these things. And I just like riffed on that, which I was very proud of. And I'd forgotten about it until I was listening to like last week's episode about the Twin Dilemma and you were talking about the essentials because I actually haven't listened to the Reality Bomb episode yet. And I was like, oh yeah, I did that too. And I was like, I was so pleased with myself because my my best friend, he was going to write for it. He's like, I think the essential was Doctor Who is comedy. And I what are you doing? I was like, the color blue. And he's like, I gotta up my game. <laughs> and I'll point out that oh. we're sitting in an alcove opposite the video room, and they're screening State of Decay right now. So um, you can possibly hear the uh, Peter Howell theme in the background. But as we're talking about Tom Baker, an essential element of Doctor yeah. Who is being screened. <laughs> He's uh, always with us. <laughs> Twenty feet from where we yeah. are sitting. <laughs> also, the color blue. Katie Manning's jacket and the three doctors. That's right. Yeah, an important use mm-hmm. of the color blue. Yep. Mm-hmm. I believe Adric has some blue on his uh, badge for mathematical yep. excellence. I'm mm-hmm. wearing a blue shirt right now with the cover of yeah. the Dinosaur Invasion novelization on it. Mm-hmm. Part of your hair is blue, so yes. Yeah, yeah. It's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So other things we can learn from Galaxy 4. We've talked about how yeah. to fix the episode. We've talked yeah. about the direction, the missing status. Well, actually, the, so, so the, the one interesting thing, I didn't even know about the six minutes from the other episode existing until, until I think I'm watching on the DVD release or something. And, and the BBC was just like not interested in partial episodes. And so I think Jan Vincent Radsky had it. And, and tried to return it, and they were like, no thanks. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, they didn't want it? Like, this is so bizarre to me. And, yeah. The only reason I knew about that was because back on Records Doctor Who, one of us kept a bloopers guide, a list of bloopers, mm. and it was in series order. So I would submit a blooper that I saw, like you can see a, a, cr- a crow flying across the screen in what's supposed to be prehistoric Earth during time yeah. flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, piano wire on the planets in Meglos. Sykes admitted those as yeah. bloopers. Uh, one oh, of the, the, the guy getting into his car in um, the war machines. Yes. Yes, is a great one. <laughs> where, where the TARDIS is materializing and the guy disappears. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's probably a whole big finished box yes. about what happened. But what happened there? Oh, oh, oh no, the theory is great. It's like you know, Stephen is with the savages and like he's like suddenly a guy appears and he's like, "What's going on? Where's my car?" <laughs> 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 so, uh, cost me my thing to thought there, Stacey. Um, I have no idea where <laughs> I was going with that. <laughs> Sorry, yes, I, I didn't do that. Uh, you, you were talking about Doctor Who bloopers and yes. uh, something about the six minutes of Galaxy 4. One of the bloopers submitted to the bloopers guide on records 30 mm-hmm. years ago is in the only surviving clip from the story, Peter Purvis has one line and he gets it wrong. Yeah. Now that is a blooper that is not a blooper because that is MAGA talking about how useless men are and Peter Purvis is doing comedy stammering. Right, right. So it is not <laughs> in I fact see. a blooper, mm-hmm. but it was it was, it was attributed yeah. as a blooper, and that's yeah. how I knew those six minutes existed. Ah, I see. Mm-hmm. I don't think I saw them until I think when this came out yeah. um, on 
when the missing episode came out on DVD, they included a whole cut-down package of the story. So they had yeah. the missing six minutes of part one, recon, an episodic, a partial recount of part two, mm-hmm. and then all of part three, followed by a partial recount of part four. Yeah, right. So in order to watch part three of Galaxy 4 when the DVD came out, you had to watch other things, including those six minutes and yeah. some telescope yeah, right. recounts. Mm-hmm. It was a partial reconstruction of the entire story with all the surviving 30 minutes and then about 20 minutes of everything else. Mm-hmm. That's my memory. Yeah. Oh, I just remember the, the one other thing I really liked about this book was actually the, the, the final countdown to the exploding planet. It's really haunting. And the way it actually just explodes at the end is, is actually very well done. And it, it's kind of like... It feels a bit like it's an, a bit too abrupt an ending. Like, like you sort of like kind of want a bit more, but actually leaves you hanging in a really nice way. And that, I mean, it just feels so random. This planet explodes with sort of no warning. It's like everything's fine, everything's fine, and in the last ten minutes, the planet's like, all right, we're going now, and everything's earthquakes and steam and lava and so forth. And but William, it's well done. William yeah. Ems is able to do a lot more with that in the book, as we mm-hmm. see little volcanic eruptions um, throughout all of the part four material. We don't know if Derek Martinez mm. was able to do that in the studio mm-hmm. in 1965. I agree with you, and in my audio essay, which I have already recorded but mm. you have not heard, I do a partial reading of that portion of ah, the book, cool. so I agree. Cool. Yeah. But instead, I want to play headcanon games with you. Yes. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any astrophysics reason for this planet to explode. Planets, uninhabited planets just don't do that. It isn't like Professor Stallman is on the other side of the... Unless it turns out... This is a... Here's a headcanon theory that I just came up with. What if it's not Galaxy 4 at all? What if they are deep in the Australian outback in an uninhabited zone and on the other side of the planet Professor Stallman is drilling? And that's why the planet blows up. So they were on Earth all along during during Inferno before the third Doctor is alive to stop Professor Stallman. That's a headcanon theory. Sure. Yeah. Are there other? And I will have a couple mentioned in the audio essay. Mm. You do not know what they are. Mm-hmm. What are some headcanon reasons for this planet exploding in exactly the way that planets do not? Yeah, I, I mean they talk about the planet going nova, and I, and I, had, I actually looked up the word nova because uh, I was like, isn't that for stars? And I was like, actually, it's not. It's Latin for new, and and the reason it says because when when stars went nova, it looked like there was a new star in the sky. I was oh. like, oh, okay, okay, so that that makes sense. But still, I don't think the word nova really applies to a planet. So my headcanon is it's secretly a sun. <laughs> so it's a sun going nova because they they literally mentioned that. There are. In Doctor Who terms, other reasons for planets to be destroyed. Can you think of any? Survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that at least, mm-hmm. uh, again, survival is my mm-hmm. least favorite of the classic series stories. Mm-hmm. But there is at least a reason the psychic link between the cheetah people and the mm-hmm. aggression of the cheetah people destroys the planet. And there's volcanoes there too. Well, maybe there's a psychic link with the Dravens. <laughs> the more aggressive they get, the more the planet explodes. Because, you know, it's supposed to be 14 dawns, and then it's only two dawns. And, and the Doctor says two dawns, and then he says, so that means tomorrow. And I'm like, what planet do you come from, Doctor? <laughs> no, he says tomorrow is the last day this planet will see, and then it explodes the <laughs> following sunrise. It actually sunrise. explodes at dawn, which I, I find quite funny. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you were serious. I just thought dawns was like a metaphor. <laughs> and it's so funny to me that the first episode is called 400 dawns. Because in my head, I thought, like, oh, okay, you know, I, I knew they had a mix-up of, like, you know, how many dawns it's got left. And I thought they had 400 dawns left. No, it turns out to be only two. And I was like, no, they have 14 dawns. Why are we calling episode one 400 dawns? It's because the dramas and the rules have been there for 400 dawns. Over like, a year. They've been there a long time. Like, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
And actually, I, I thought that change from 414 was in the novelization, and I went and checked the transcripts, and no, no, that's in the TV show. It's, it's an odd choice. I and don't know quite what the point of it is. There's also a line in the novelization that corrects what is thought to be a blooper on TV, because there's no reason for the story to be called Galaxy 4. We learn the first time the Doctor meets the Dravins that they are on a planet in Galaxy 4. Right, You know, right. that one planet okay. in Galaxy yeah. 4. Yes. I don't know how many planets <laughs> a galaxy has, but it's a lot more than one. Well, I mean, I, I remember, I remember in like, I think it was like 1991, the first like planet was discovered that it was outside the solar system. Right. Right. And it was not known that there were any before that. And I remember this quite bad. And now there's like so many millions that are known about. But like at the time, I remember, oh, there's one. Like that was so cool. So in, you know, the 1960s and then in the 1980s, like it's quite reasonable to think there might be a planet in the galaxy because, you know, we only had a couple as far as we knew. Although in the Doctor Who universe, they'd already been yeah. to several <laughs> other planets. Mm-hmm. So, does Galaxy 4 belong on a list of the 60 greatest Doctor Who stories of the past 60 years? It absolutely does not. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. However, but that's okay. That's okay. The reason we have 60 great stories is because not every story can be on that list. And this is fine. To distinguish between greatest and favorite, would Galaxy 4 appear on your own list of your 60 favorite Doctor Who stories? Ah, well, in that case, the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I... I made a list of my top 60, and I read mm. portions of it out earlier during the 60 for 60 panel that you unfortunately mm. weren't here for. You would have been a great contributor. I think the surviving episode 3 is directed by William Ems is worth watching over and over again as a piece of archival television mm. and a learning tool. So I think this is a story that is worth watching. I'm not sure if it's in my top 60, because there's many other great Hartnells. Yeah. And I will say, three of the first four stories mentioned on my panel were Hartnells, and I've got a wow. very excited thing. Mm. Oh, wow. Maybe we're going to do the full heart now, but yeah. unfortunately the scales shifted yeah. after that. <laughs> um, if an audience member, and this is a very niche podcast with a small but dedicated listener base, if by chance some member of my audience has not seen either the recon or the surviving bits of Galaxy 4, do you recommend they pause the podcast, find the DVD, go online and find the loose cannon recon on daily motion watch all of galaxy 4 and then come back and resume the rest of this episode yeah yeah i do i i think it's worth it's worth seeing right at least once um and and like i say you know i was so excited when i saw the the episode when it got returned um and and i'd only known it through this novelization so for me yeah you know i was i was that listener right i was like like oh cool i haven't seen this let me you know absorb the book stuff and let me go find the episode when i can um so yeah and and as you say the the visuals are much stronger than the the sort of base story that we've got in here and like you say i hope that when another doctor who story is discovered it is one of the obscure ones that people can reevaluate. maybe we'll get a bit of the macro terror maybe we can get a bit of the highlanders which is a difficult story to work through on recon because it's so varied and changes in tone dramatically Mm -hmm. or maybe we will be when we see episode one of the space pirates maybe that will quickly rise to the top of everybody's list (laughs) or possibly not (laughs) but yeah i like the idea that we can see these more obscure corners of the universe and we can celebrate a galaxy Mm. for even if it is not the doctor who that grew up to become doctors and lawyers to quote billy joel (laughs) by the way those three questions came courtesy of darren mooney and the 250 podcast without Uh. permission but i love asking those questions stacy what else is in store for you for this weekend 
Oh, I am just so excited to be here, having really struggled to get to the convention. Uh, I think I've got a few panels still that I, I will not be missing. Um, I'm looking forward to just hanging out with friends. I'm looking forward to just talking about Doctor Who. Like, I was like, you know, I love the, the recent Tenet specials, so I want to talk all about them. Um, yeah, I'm super excited for like the upcoming series. I'm, you know, like loving loving everything actually right now it's right, really so cool i will play with you the same game that i played with Sci hard on this podcast two weeks ago i'm going to ask you three quick questions one for each of the 60th anniversary stories Bring not, it not counting church on ruby <laughs> road which is not part of the 60th yeah. anniversary question number one there have now been many versions of the star beast there has been the comic strip the big finish and now the televised episode which is the best version of star beast oh clearly the televised episode because it's the only one I've experienced. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's very easy. <laughs> so, I mean, I know I know of the DWM comic. I didn't even know there was a big finish one. But honestly, if I'd taken a random shot in the dark, I would have guessed there was one. <laughs> sure. But actually, yeah, no, I, I love that episode. I was really super into it. I watched it at uh, Chicago Tardis. And, and because I was a guest at Chicago Tardis, um, I was just, like, standing in line with everyone else. And they went and found me and said, oh, we need you to come and sit at the front. And, and people were like, no, 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 no. We're just going to stand here. And they're like, no, no, no. You see they're going to be filming the the front row and the the, the front seats are reserved for the guests and no one's in there because the guests haven't bothered to come we oh. need you and like, oh, okay so they they dragged her out to the front and they, and they rachel totally filmed the front row or they filmed she filmed the whole audience but she, the front row is of course there yes and then sent it to david tennant i'm like wait what so david <laughs> so. tennant was watching you watch david tennant yes that's very meta yes <laughs> wow mm-hmm. well I've had David Tennant's mother-in-law on this podcast, so I guess it all comes back to David Tennant. Yeah. <laughs> Second question. We're talking about a Doctor Who story and a massive spaceship that goes on for miles and miles and miles. And the spaceship is set to slow time, so there is a countdown to doom happening. But what should be a 10-second countdown is taking 10 months or 10 years. So which of the two Doctor Who stories fitting that exact description is better. Wild Blue Yonder or Terminus? Because it's the same story. <laughs> with the with the ancient alien corpse scene. Yeah, your, your gum is too long. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh! Actually, I, I, I knew somebody I, was going to make that joke. In fact, I knew it was going to be you, Yes, Stacey. yes, yes. You got me there. Uh, actually, I watched Terminus just recently because uh, I was bringing my, my partner to um, Chicago Tardis and, and she hadn't seen any classic series, really. And she's like, we need to watch like a huge amount of like classic Doctor Who centered around all the actors who are going to be at Chicago Tardis. So, so we, we did like a, you know, like Janet Fielding, like Peter Davison kind of run through and end up watching the... the um, uh, you know, Tolo uh, kind of like three-parter and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I quite enjoy Terminus, but wow, do I love Wild Blue Yonder with a passion. It is it is one of my all-time favorites, I think. I'm just happy for that. Your, your garment's too long. <laughs> so the last question, and this has to do with the giggle. What is the in-universe explanation? And James Goss pointed out that they did not have clearance to use that Spice Girls song in the novelization, so they had to restructure the musical sequence. Mm-hmm. But what is the in-universe explanation for the celestial toy maker, a godlike being from outside of time, having a frame of reference for A, knowing who the Spice Girls are, and B, being able to choreograph and perform that song on no notice? What is the in-universe explanation for that? Oh, well, the in-universe explanation, I think, is that he, he loves to play, and so play takes all kinds of form, right? Like, I mean, I think we think of him as really like, well, he plays, like, games you know like of chance or whatever but like i think play is a very larger 
sort of concept, I think. Um, now, I will say, like, I hated the giggle. I hated that with a passion. Like, I, like, I didn't mind Shurigawa's stuff at the end, if that was alright, but like, wow did I hate that episode. And it just, it just underplayed everything, like, like, yeah, the Spice Girls thing is like, yeah, it's a well done dance sequence or whatever, why is it there? No idea. Like, it just, it just does not fit with anything. Um, and, and the biggest problem for me was a game of catch. I'm like, really? Like, you know, okay, so like, like, you know, the Doctor cuts the cards and loses? Sure, you can have like one simple thing. How is the Doctor going to outwit the Celestial Toymaker? He's going to play catch. Like, it's just like, what, sorry, what? <laughs> what is happening? You even got two Doctors and no, they're still going to play catch. It is just really, really awful to me. <laughs> and people complain about the 10-minute hopscotch sequence in episode 4 of the original yeah. Celestial Toymaker. Russell mm-hmm. Davies goes, hold my beer. I've got yeah. a worse idea. <laughs> well, Stacy, I can't thank you enough. Have a great rest of the con. I hope to see a lot more of you before I leave on Sunday. Oh, thank you very much for having me. At last. <laughs> Hello fellow time travelers and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and every two weeks or so I'm joined by a two to three person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including Dalton Hughes and Alison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Doctor Who, Galaxy 4, by William Ems, televised as Galaxy 4, teleplay by William Ems, televised in September and October 1965, paperback release date April 10th, 1986, target book number 104, cover artist Andrew Skilleter. Following a skirmish in deep space, two alien spacecraft have crash-landed on a barren planet in Galaxy 4. The Dravins are a race of beautiful females, led by the imperious Maga. The Rills are hideous, tusked monstrosities, accompanied by their robotic servants, the Chumblies. When the Doctor arrives, he discovers that the planet will explode in two days' time. The Dravins desperately ask for his help in escaping the planet and the belligerent Rills. But things are not always as they seem. Back in episode 101A... Jim Sangster and I discussed the making of this story. Galaxy 4 was the first Doctor Who episode aired during the show's third TV season, but was actually, along with Mission to the Unknown, the production code TA to Galaxy 4's production code T, the final work of the show's second production block, as Verity Lambert and Dennis Spooner were handing over the reins of production to John Wiles and Donald Tosh, respectively. Wiles as we discussed, left the show a flaming mess during his half-year in charge, and Tosh was a catty storyteller who spent most of the next 50 years saying mean things about his colleagues, most notably Bill Hartnell and Terry Nation. It was during the making of Galaxy 4, for example, that Wiles and Tosh decided to fire Maureen O'Brien, thoughtfully failing to tell her 
until after she'd already used her four-week summer break to not line up other work. Galaxy 4 is also the only completed Doctor Who serial penned by William Ems, who, in writing a story where women were the villains, evidently left behind enough personal correspondence to assure us that he wrote this story straight from his heart. What follows is an excerpt from a fanzine that was found for me by Mark from Trap 1, with whom I am also hanging out at Gallifrey 1 this weekend. He believes this was reprinted in DWM and came from an old issue of TARDIS magazine. The article writer says, What particularly interested me about this story, Galaxy 4, was that although it was broadcast before the advent of women's lib, some of their ideas are contained within the scripts. Was he, William Ems, interested in the movement? And this is Ems, quote, Not even remotely. I accept that some women had, and undoubtedly still have, a bad time and deserve help. But most of the women I see espousing the cause give me a right royal pain. If only they didn't look so unprepossessing. If only they weren't so strident, wailing like banshees in the night. They are, beyond doubt, a crashing bore. The trouble is, you see, that I've never thought of the ladies as anything but equal, although different. But I still open my doors for them and offer them my seat. Ask my wife. That was William Ems. Ems had made efforts to write for Doctor Who again after Galaxy 4, none of which came to fruition, but 20 years later, here he is novelizing his own scripts. From the moment I first picked this up at a short-lived comic book shop in Plainview, New York, from where I also bought three of the last four issues of Marvel's first short-lived Doctor Who book, and Doctor Who the Early Years, and the novelization of The Twin Dilemma, a fact I'd totally forgotten until I saw that both novelizations bear identical shop markings on the title page. I knew this book was special, because it turns the four-part serial into a four-chapter book, so you know right away where the cliffhangers are, and where to stop reading for the night. That was a big deal for me when I was 12 years old. Twelve-year-old boys in my middle school were usually either staying up late to watch horror films or the Porky's films. I was trying to figure out where Doctor Who episode cliffhangers had been 20 years earlier. The other boys at Harry B. Thompson Junior High School sure found me a laugh riot, I can assure you. What kind of writer is William Ems? I remember having thought this book poorly written when I last read it a decade ago from my blog. There are... In retrospect, fewer run-on sentences than we'll find in later Hartnell-era novelizations written by their TV writers. John Lucarati's take on The Massacre will be featured on the show in a few more months, and Philip Martin's coming novelization of Vengeance on Varos, if memory serves me right, is basically one single 444-page run-on sentence. But Ems does have some odd ideas. His first doctor cuts a quote, Strange but brave sight, page 11. Working from the camera script, he retains a reference to the Space Museum, which hasn't been novelized yet as of this book's release. And he describes Stephen as having fair hair. And he has the Doctor proclaim that the three suns in the sky might just revolve around the planet. Thanks, Ptolemy. A lot of the Doctor's TV dialogue, scientific proclamations mostly, are down-converted into prose. For the book. Ems, professor of women's studies, 
first starts to clear his throat with this interesting, instantly dated paragraph on page 15. Quote, the doctor came to a halt and looked cautiously at the beautiful woman approaching. It seemed to him that there was something of a surplus of weapons on this planet. He did not greatly care for that. Nor was he much taken with the way they always seemed to be pointed at him, as this one was. It might well have been a beautiful woman at the end of it, but her eyes looked cold and intense. Hmm. Maybe the doctor should have told her to smile more. On page 18, Ems does write an effective paragraph about the doctor's advancing years, then correctly writes that he has two hearts. This may have been an editorial change to the original manuscript, or else Ems was aware of the show's post-1970 Time Lord biology lessons. The doctor tells Stephen, God bless you, which no doctor that I know of would ever say. Page 20, quote he, Stephen, was beginning to dislike attractive women who showed no signs of feeling. Preach, brother. You tell them they should smile more, too, and dress in tighter clothes. But wait, Ems has even more for us along the same vein. Page 22, quote, he, Stephen, was far from used to women having such an attitude. He preferred the old-fashioned type, gentle, loving, fond of homely things. The warlike variety did not win him over at all. End quote. Stephen Taylor, proponent of tradwives at your service. Page 28, the doctor, quote, There was too much arrogance about the woman. MAGA, he decided. You would have to try and do something about that. Though to offset this, the doctor gives a passionate speech about ending slavery, one of several additions to the book not heard on TV. Page 30, from behind and above it, the chumbly looked like a, quote, round-bottomed old lady pottering about her domestic duties, the doctor thought, end quote. And again, to be fair, for every cringy line, Ems gets off a good one, page 33. There were occasions where Stephen found it difficult to distinguish between pride and conceit in the doctor. Ems starts off the episode 2 material on page 37, with a poetic description of how first the planet would explode and then its suns would go nova. How this is scientifically possible, or even probable, under the laws of physics is unclear, unless you want to come up with some neckbeard unifying fan theory about how this took place during the stolen Earth or the flux, or maybe it was Omega's test case for the remote stellar manipulator. Ems again reaches for the mythic on page 38, trying to figure out who the Doctor is, a year or two before the so-called Cartmel Master Plan would have come into being, such as it were. Quote, he wasn't God, simply something of a clown in his own eyes, trolling about through time and space, seeking the final truth as he inhabited one body after another, and yet with the dull feeling that the final truth would remain forever beyond his reach. So we have M's here, trying to do something more with this book than merely retell the TV story, and that is a point in his favor. God is mentioned again on page 56, the third time already before the book's halfway point, which is at least two mentions too many for my taste, Doctor Who being a strictly secular universe at its best. There are some minor differences between TV and book dialogue, 
not much worth reporting on line by line, but the doctor's TV line about Guy Fawkes after the Chumbly fails to blow up the ship is not on the book. That would sound like a Hartnell ad-lib come up with in rehearsal. And to reward the reader, Ems inserts a 10-page scene, the good one actually, where the doctor and Stephen fall into a real tiger trap and have to use their ingenuity to get out. Stephen's agility and the doctor dragging a chumbly into the trap so they can use it to climb out again, but not before the doctor has fun, taking a screwdriver to the chumbly and pulling out wire after wire, quote, his own advanced technique, lol, to turn the thing off. This goes from pages 42 to 51. I'm not sure if that was from the original script submission and was deleted due to cost or logistics, or if it was added to give flavor to the book, but it's a strong addition. Another big alteration from the TV is Stephen's fight scene on page 57. There is a fight scene on TV, but it's stopped by the other Draven soldiers. In the book, though, M's possibly working through some stuff, as if he conjured up MAGA to be the amalgamation of everything he hated about the world of women, and was using Stephen as fictional revenge, has Stephen flip MAGA over backwards and knock her semi-unconscious as her head smashes into the deck. Ouch a Rooney, as the kids say. No, the kids don't say that. As a writer, Ems has a habit of flipping back and forth between character POVs, sometimes in the same paragraph, like in the Stephen Maga fight. Now in the 1990s, the NAs would have two mostly steadfast rules. A, only one POV per section, and B, that POV was never the doctor's. Ems would not have been a great N.A. writer. In fact, he died the month the highest science was published, which you know better as the launching point, or half the launching point, for the Easter 2009 special, Planet of the Dead. But the Doctor's POV scene on pages 62 and 63, pondering on his inevitable regeneration, and quoting Bertrand Russell, is interesting. Although Ems's thoughts on dictatorship, page 65, quote, the better the mind, the more like it was to start trouble, a fact well known to all dictators on earth, who long made it their practice to take the minds of the young and manipulate them to their own devious ends. Freedom of thought can have dangerous consequences. They never allowed any such thing. End quote. Check out what's happening with Florida's state takeover of the university system for some real-life examples of what Ems is warning us about. There is one brief scene with Maga and the Dravens running a weapons check late in episode 2 that is not kept for the book. I want to guess that was a filler scene written, probably by Donald Tosh, either to bring an underrunning script up to 25 minutes, or as a bit of business to allow the actors in the next scene, Hartnell and Maureen O'Brien, to make it across the studio to their next set. The Dr. Vicky dialogue after they meet the Rills early in Chapter 3 slash Episode 3 is different from TV. And oh boy, does the Doctor let Vicky have it for finding the Rills ugly? Page 77, quote, A little more tolerance is what you need, and much less of this burgeoning female arrogance I seem to be encountering all the time since we landed. Claims of superiority I always find extremely boring. There's always someone better. Except in my case, of course. End quote. Dialogue for the Hartnell Doctor. Oucharoony, as somebody once said. No, nobody said that. Fortunately, 
nothing remotely like that Hartnell monologue is on television. Now, one of the awesome things about the return of Galaxy 4 Episode 3 back in 2011 was seeing just how amazing the late Stephanie Bidmead was as MAGA. That and Derek Martinez's inventive direction, huge revelations for me. MAGA's big soliloquy to the camera in Episode 3 is light, so let's make that our first audio clip of the episode. It may be that we shall kill neither the wills nor the earth creatures. Not with our own hands, that is. It may be better for us to escape in the wills' spaceship and leave them here. And then, when we are out in space, we can look back. See a vast, white, exploding planet. And know that they have died with it. But we will not see them die. You will not. But I at least have enough intelligence to imagine it. Fear. The horror. The shuddering of a planet in its last moments of life. And then they die. The corresponding passage in the book is pages 81 through 85 and gives us brief glimpses of life on Drava. The elite wear scarlet garments. There was only one political party, quote, so all votes cast only served to prolong the same regime. The Dravans wish to conquer space, but Maga quickly realizes that her cloned servants make poor soldiers. Maga's plight is somewhat poignant. The loneliness of command, even if her command is an evil near-genocidal one with specific details about her planned genocide on page 107 of the book, if you need it. What do the rules look like? I had no idea until episode 3 was returned, but the frequent mention in chapter 3 that they have purple eyelids put me in mind of Snuffleupagus from Sesame Street, a big mammoth-looking quadruped thing with a long trunk. Between 1986 and 2011, that was my headcanon mental image of the Rills, Snuffleupagus. True story. And while we're on the subject, or off the subject, I guess is more accurate to say, my mental image of the Almighty during years and years of Hebrew school was Letterman, from Sesame Street's shorter-lived companion piece, The Electric Company. Varsity sweater and an old-fashioned leather 1920s-style American football helmet. Letterman was voiced by Gene Wilder, by the way. So in my head canon, the Lord was Gene Wilder. These are all true stories. Back to the book. The Rills, on pages 91 to 93, narrate Rashomon style, a tale of what happened when the Rills first encountered the Drobans on the planet's surface. That's fine. But on TV, Derek Martinez shoots it as a live in-studio flashback, a brilliant narrative trick, as much so as Stephanie Bidmead addressing the camera earlier. Minor changes as a chumbly blasts the gun from a Draven soldier's hand and melts it. Cool effect. Impossible to achieve in 1965, so on TV, Vicky merely rests it out of her hands instead. As we've discussed, this book leans into the idea that the William Hartnell doctor's body is, to coin a phrase, wearing a bit thin. Maga herself points this out on page 111. Quote, she stared at her enemies in total hatred unable to believe that she had been thwarted by such an ill-assorted trio of humans, particularly that ridiculous-looking doctor, 
like something which had slothfully emerged from between the dried pages of time, and would be well advised to return there. End quote. Ems also gets into Stephen's head, or at least the male companion's head. Stephen would have been a late addition to Ems's journey through plotting and drafting Galaxy 4, and all that was 20 years in the past when this book came out. So Ems essentially puts in his own thought processes for Stephen. An example, page 116. Stephen had to ruefully accept the observation, as he recalled that at any given moment on Earth, there was at least one war going on somewhere. There was hatred, murder, and horror aplenty, little enough to be proud of, but sufficient to compel human beings to proceed through life with caution, even mistrust. He wished he could accept the altruism of the rills as readily as the doctor obviously had, but his conditioning was too strong, and anyway it had stood him in good stead thus far in life. There was no good reason to discard it particularly since the doctor had this gift for landing them in one scrape after another. The very next page gets into the reproductive habits of the Rills, I think with a sly, incel-style dig at the selectivity of females the universe over, quote, anyone who happened to be passing could and did fertilize an egg. The presence of a particular male was not essential, though more often than not the females tried to make it seem so. Hmm, not sure I like where that's going, followed by several paragraphs about how the Rills can adjust the speed of their thoughts to match the moment, and how they prefer preservation of physical energy and more deliberation of thought. This is interesting xenosociology, though the TV dialogue contains a few more interesting wrinkles. Now you know what we look like. I do, and I for one am glad of it. We apologize for the glass petition, but you will understand we must keep our atmosphere in yes, here. Yes, of course, of course. Our appearance shocked you? Not now, I must admit it did at first. But I don't see why the driving should hate you. No, I mean, after all, we must look just as strange to you. To all the drive-ins, we are ugly, so they become frightened. You are different from us, of course, but at least you are intelligent. Yes, what the difference does it make what your form is? The focus lies in the character, to what use you put this intelligence. We respect you, as we respect all life. Pages 124 through 128 are a fight scene new for the book, the Dravids making their way past the Chumblies and through to the real spaceship with military precision. Maga is described as a well-respected general on her home world, and we also see the planet start to disintegrate in a way that would have been difficult, though surely not impossible, for Derek Martinez to accomplish on TV. I think what this novelization most reminds me of is 1930s pulp science fiction, full of ideas as to what alien life is like, but often with preachy dialogue, ham-handed exposition, and purple prose. Try reading John W. Campbell's Who Goes There? or the recently rediscovered and released full-length novel version of that, Frozen Hell, as compared to John Carpenter's lean and haunting 1982 movie adaptation of the same story. Galaxy 4 is not a super well-written book, but it is hard science fiction, a genre with which Doctor Who did not always engage. On page 130, a chumbly knocks out one of the Dravans, saying it's more humane for her to not be awake when the planet blows up and she is still on it. The book adds the line, not heard on TV, quote, alive but unconscious, to which my brain automatically supplies the answer, as it so often does, from the movie Airplane, 
he's alive but unconscious, like Gerald Ford, which is funny for listeners who recall the often befuddled speeches of that short-term U.S. president of the mid-1970s. While Ems's prose style is not elegantly simple like Terence Dick's, and while his sentence structure is incapable of generating momentum like Terence, I would compare him more to Chris Boucher's intelligent but often dull 1990s Doctor Who past Doctor Adventure novels, there are times when he paints the word picture very well. Page 139, as the reels blast off, quote, The hum became a mighty roaring. The doctor and his party turned to watch the liftoff. A bright glow pulsated outward from the base of the real ship, growing into such power that they could see the top of it vibrating against the menacingly ochreous sky. Second followed second until they could see the ship literally straining to leap away like a hound with all muscles gathered and waiting for the final spring. Then the restraining power was released, light and debris hurled themselves outward, and the vessel leapt triumphantly up towards space. Momentarily it flickered before them, then was gone, the outbuildings now a mere heap of rubble to mark its passing. That takeoff, the doctor had to admit, was final proof of how advanced the rills were, if proof were needed. The book ends with the destruction of the planet. The second to last paragraph is from Maga's POV. And then the final paragraph is the author, pure M's. But you'll note that some of the most poetic or emotionally charged bits of dialogue heard on TV are not in the book. That leads me to guess that those TV-only lines were penned by Donald Tosh, who would have been story editor for this serial. Like the rules departing line of the book, thanks again for your help, which is simple and bloodless, the TV line must be Tosh, as it serves as an epigraph for the theme of the entire serial. Quote, it is easy to help others when they are so willing to help you. Though we are beings of separate planets, you from the solar system and we from another space, our ways of thought at times do not seem all that different. It has been an honor to know you and serve you. That's a line written specifically to highlight the story's emotional themes and make the audience go, aww. That's the value that a good script editor or script doctor brings to the table. And I think in this case, all credit for that goes to Donald Tosh. So that's where Galaxy 4, the book, ends, but not where the TV ends. The TV concludes with two scenes bridging into the next two serials, Serial TA, on screen title Mission to the Unknown, which has the same director and two of the same cast members as Serial T. The first closing scene is a TARDIS scene with Vicky having needlessly sprained her ankle, and the final scene is a teaser for Mission, which itself is a teaser for the Daleks' master plan. The funny bit about Mission is that Robert Cartland, the voice of the Rills, the good guy in this story, shows up as the voice of an evil delegate to the Dalek War Conference in Mission. Now there's a dark but funny thought. What if it were the Rills who were delegates to the Dalek Conference? What if Robert Cartland was playing the same character in both Serial T and Serial TA? What if the Doctor really did choose the wrong side after all? Speaking of which, next time on Doctor Who Literature, we are going to jump ahead 20 years of television time. We are going from the simple morality play that is Galaxy 4 to a much more complicated tale featuring dozens of characters, a riff on H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, another riff on H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, and a character 
from H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, as well as a character on TV portrayed with possibly a little too much enthusiasm by Paul Darrow. I am speaking, of course, of Doctor Who, Book 105, Time Lash. That's next time on Doctor Who Literature. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Doctor Who Literature. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me and recorded in Los Angeles. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, Stacy Smith. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Dr. Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Blue Sky and YouTube at Dr. Who Novels, that's D-R Who Novels, and on email at Dr. Who Literature, that's D-R Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.